Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are... However you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-host Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. You can give us a call live on air, get your opera voice heard. What's your opinion on what we're talking about tonight? We've got a great show, 847-866-9678. All right, tonight we induct our first composer into the OBS Hall of Fame. Find out who I'm going to tap to join the glorious ranks of our past winners. But first, the OBS Summer Opera Festival road trip continues. We teleport to upstate New York and talk to Christopher Powell, Director of Artistic Initiatives at the Glimmerglass Festival, about what's happening there this summer and why the sound of breaking glass is a good thing. Plus, 8.40 p.m., excuse me, 9.40 p.m., I guess I'm on mountain time, 9.40 p.m. tonight, two-minute drill, everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land and our team's hot takes on those stories. we got a great show for you this evening and we have the great tobias wright in studio i'm here george did you happen to watch any of the british open the the third golf major of this year i mean it is in in uh britain of course scotland but i'm not much of a golf guy no so tiger woods did have the solo lead on sunday afternoon in a major which he hadn't had in a decade and that's a long time to go between almost winning majors and he didn't win it was really devastating he got third place but it was really exciting to happen one of the most fascinating characters in sports yeah he's like he's been both the hero and the villain but he's been forgiven hero yeah yeah everybody's like that's matt cummings of course yeah i i just think it's fast like he's got some really good uh some good karma with the media with the media and the public as a whole that everyone really wants to give him the benefit not everyone i can't speak for everyone yeah but i feel like people give him the benefit of the doubt and really root for him it's kind of interesting because he did some really awful things that other people have been not forgiven for. Weston Williams is also in studio two over there. Weston, you've been watching golf? I have never seen golf in my life. <laughs> what is golf? <laughs> what is golf? <laughs> Just I the don't wi- understand. You know, you hit the you hit the balls around the field. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. All right, mouse. boys, let's talk some opera. Chalk talk on opera box score. That's what you're listening to on WNUR, 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here with a great cast of characters. Christopher Powell is the Director of Artistic Initiatives at the Glimmer Glass Festival in Cooperstown, New York, and the producer of the new podcast, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Chris, so much for being on the show tonight. Thanks for having me, George. So, hey, lo- guys, how you doing? Hi, thanks for talking hello, with us. Hello, hello, greetings. So, uh, Chris, first off, have you been to the Baseball Hall of Fame? <laughs> of course. Yeah, I've <laughs> been there um, three times, although never once have I actually toured for baseball. Um, I think the first time I went there was for a town meeting for a uh, local state senator. And then uh, my favorite trip to the Hall of Fame, actually, if anybody uh, does come up to Cooperstown, there is an incredible library at the Hall of Fame uh, that includes some of the most interesting uh, original publications of old songs from like the early 1900s, 1910s, of old baseball songs. 
and uh, and there's a, a librarian there with who uh, gives white glove treatment to those pieces of music. Is that like it's the is that like the organ dun 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 or are we talking something more more sophisticated? Uh, I, I don't know about more sophisticated, but <laughs> more humorous. But they, there's some really really fun songs from the early days of baseball in the United States. That's even better than "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," which is much <laughs> must be the classic uh, seventh <laughs> inning stretch. I can't song. think of any other uh, baseball songs. Chris, how does Glimmer and Glass compare, contrast, stand apart from the other major summer opera festivals in America? Well, you know, I don't want to compare really to any other festival because I think that what, what we all do is very unique uh, in terms of in festival world. Uh, when when festivals are doing their best work, uh, then opera wins rather than trying to compete with each other. But what makes us stand, stand out uh, in, in this festival universe is uh, this massive internship program that we have uh, at the festival, which is, you know, we have a, a very small staff of only 29 people who are year-round up here in Cooperstown in good weather and bad. And, uh, and then when festival season starts around Memorial Day, that just blows up to 350 people, including uh, the singers, the young artists, the, uh, the staff, uh, the, the, the seasonal staff, and interns. And it's, it's really impressive to see this consistent level of quality being produced by interns who were guided by some of the best people in the business at such a large scale. And... Um... How does your audience overlap with other audiences at other national opera festivals and then more locally for classical summer programming right in that Hudson Valley, upstate New York, Finger Lakes area? Yeah, we are in a unique position. Uh, Cooperstown is kind of like an hour and a half too far away from just about everybody else. So the overlap is minimal, but we still we have a very... Uh, you know, enthusiastic crowd of people who go to both Santa Fe, let's say, and and uh, Glimmerglass. Um, you know, Tanglewood is probably the closest uh, music festival to us, um, you know, of significant size, and that is uh, only about 90 minutes to two hours away. There's very little overlap. Uh, there, you know, the Boston Symphony crowd is a different crowd that comes for opera at Glimmerglass. Uh, the classical music scene here in Cooperstown is. It's pretty minimal. We're kind of like the game in town, but there is a small uh, Cooperstown Summer Music Festival that's primarily chamber music. And the museum here, the Fenimore Museum, is really great because they, they tend to coordinate some of their exhibits with uh, pieces that we're offering on our stage. So a lot of us work together as a community to create uh, a larger artistic experience. Now, uh, obviously, Glimmerglass is kind of a special case because it's, you know, a, a, a summer festival as opposed to a sort of a traditional opera house kind of setup. Do you find that there are any, um, any significant advantages or, or challenges associated with running a, a festival uh, versus, you know, what, what you might encounter with uh, running an opera company? Uh, uh, do you think there's any, any difference at all? Uh, what, what, where do you stand on that? Well, uh, you know, most people that I've heard from think that festivals, just because we have everybody captured up here, that they're going to be stuck seeing all four of our productions. But people still like to be able to uh, to pick and choose their uh, their poison, so to speak. And uh, I think I've I've worked in a in a year long opera company, and and uh, and this is a you know the other side of the spectrum in the festival. Um, what I find to be really interesting, they both have their advantages and disadvantages. Uh, you know, as an administrator, there's a, a, a huge amount of wait time until you finally get some opera into your system. Whereas mm-hmm. in a in a year in a year long company, uh, you know, you have a little bit more of a steady diet of opera, but it's usually one at a time, depending on whether you own your theater or not. Like most. A lot of opera companies don't own their own facilities, so they're at the whim of a, of, of, a, of a theater that they rent or you know borrow for a particular time. But you know we own our properties. That's a very, that's another particular challenge. But um, it's really a wonderful thing to see four operas in three days if you decide to spend a weekend at Glimmerglass. It's uh, it, it's an impressive feat to watch, and you can even watch the changeovers on Saturday afternoon 
between performances. The four operas for the 2018 season, Bernstein's West Side Story, Janicek's The Cunning Little Vixen, Rossini's The Barber of Seville, and Silent Night by Kevin Putz and Sir Mark Campbell, as I like to call him. <laughs> the hardest working man in show. Business. Well, he really is. So, Chris, what is the highlight of the season for you personally? Gosh, this is a great season at Glimmerglass. I cannot stress that enough that if you don't have plans to come to Glimmerglass, you need to make plans to come to Glimmerglass. It's hard to say what's really my favorite, but um, I think it's been very clear. You know, almost three years ago, uh, we started talking about the co-production of Silent Night with uh, Wexford and Atlanta, which are the two other companies that co-produced this production of Silent Night. That is clearly my very favorite but every single thing we're doing is so interesting. You know, West Side Story has been cast with musical theater artists and opera singers, and they're charged with dancing the uh, Jerome Robbins choreography. <laughs> if you've ever seen an opera singer dance, it's usually I, not a good thing to see. This I was, was going to ask, how are some of your young artists, this is Toby Wright, by the way, how are some of your I young think. artists that are singers uh, handling the dancing of the West Side Story? Uh, incredibly well. I have never seen an opera singer dance or do a split as, <laughs> as, as well as they can do it in this. Some of them can't really get all the way down, but, you know, who can? <laughs> if you're a dancer, great. But anyway, it's really incredibly impressive. Um, the Cunning Little Vixen is such a beautiful, fantastical uh, setting by um, and, and costumes. The, the, I've never seen anything quite like that. It looks like the stage is being... It is, is turned into like a big wooden tree that takes the center part of the stage. It, it is incredibly impressive. Um, Ryan McGettigan and Eric Teague uh, did the set and costumes, respectively. They're incredible artists. But um, I'd say for sure that Kevin Hudson and Mark Campbell's uh, Silent Night is, is, is divine among new opera. You guys are spoiled for choice up there in Cooperstown this this summer. Hey, so Chris, um, Breaking Glass, this is something that when you and I met at the Opera America Conference last month in June, there was a whole session dedicated to you and the two contributors to that podcast, host Paige Hernandez and contributor Taswell Thompson. Set it up a little bit for us, if you would. This is such a unique idea, and I want to hear you do it justice. Oh, goodness. <clears throat> How much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> well, you got 30 seconds. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I, I will put it this way. Breaking glass is um, like an umbrella sort of term for the community engagement efforts at Glimmer Glass. Breaking glass has two components. One is a, uh, a series of national forums that are going across the United States. In fact, I'll be at Seattle Opera this coming Saturday uh, to do national forum number six. Uh, and then the other part is the podcast. The podcast premieres on August the 4th, coming up in a couple weeks here. Uh, Breaking Glass started actually with an idea that Francesca Zambello, who is the artistic and general director at the Glimmer Glass Festival, um, she was familiar with a citizen artist fellow at the Kennedy Center named Paige Hernandez, who was is a hip-hop artist primarily and educator and choreographer, director. She's more than a triple threat. Uh, she, Francesca approached the page about writing a hip-hop libretto. And, of course, uh, it, you know, it became the hip-hopera stopping ground. But writing hip-hop in the opera universe, and I think you know quite a bit about this one, George, from your Rossini production, is that um, you can't really do a hip-hop uh, libretto and opera combined in a vacuum, and that you have to have some kind of context and honesty and authenticity about how you're writing, who you're writing, and why you're writing. So uh, Breaking Glass was, was born out of this idea of hip-hopera, and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation came forward with a significant grant over three years, and 2017 funded the uh, stomping ground, and then the second year are these national forums that are going around the United States uh, in nine locations. And, uh, and then the podcast uh, is an outgrowth of these national forums or this conversation about the social issues and equity, diversity, and inclusion that we're talking about. And the Opera America Innovation Grant came forward to create, help us create the podcast. And that's where it all started taking off. So 
breaking glass is is breaking down some barriers to entry for people into opera who might not ordinarily um, have opera as you know being the Western European uh, cultural icon that it is. That's not how most of the universe has actually experienced art for the first time. So we're trying to break some barriers of entry into the opera field. Here's a quick little clip from one of the, the, the promo, the trailer, I think, if I'm right in saying, is this is like not even the first episode that we're going to listen to here, right? The first episode doesn't launch till August 4, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, August 4. This is the uh, like a, a segment of a promo uh, that's out right now on most of the outlets where you can uh, download your podcast. Let's take a listen. In the world of opera, there's a powerful reoccurring image. You probably know it. Someone sings a note so high and so piercing that it can shatter glass. That image and that idea have permeated popular culture for as long as I can remember. A single operatic voice has the power to change everything. Even before we went into rehearsal, the black members of the chorus got together and they wanted to talk to me and said, we really need to talk about this N-word, the usage of the N-word. A member of the chorus said, no, we do want to know why we have to sing this word. Sing it. Not once, but several times as this story is being told about this man who was chased and dragged out of the shop and then lynched. And then he said, I'm willing to change it. Because we said, but what would you change it to? Tell me. They couldn't find the word. You know, this this white mob didn't chase after this black man and say, let's go get that person of color. You know, they said, let's go get that N-word. I admired this, this company of black singers, this chorus of men and women who had to sing this. Someone has to speak up in the room. And they did. They wanted to have their voices heard. That was Taswell Thompson, who is part of the Breaking Glass podcast coming out of the Glimmerglass Opera Festival along with host Paige Hernandez here on Opera Box Score. We're talking to Christopher Powell, the Director of Artistic Initiatives at the Glimmerglass Festival. Chris, what kind of challenges or what's one of the challenges that you've really run into in putting this podcast together? Please don't tell me it was all smooth sailing. (laughs) Gosh, no. Uh, It's been incredible to to work on this podcast, it's, it's changing, it's affirming, it is uh, it's, it, more than I ever could have imagined, uh, you know, the process to be. But I will say that it's been really difficult because there are so many elements that we have to put together in order to make uh, this recording, it, technically. Uh, we have a producer of the podcast itself. Uh, her name is Stacia Brown. She lives in Baltimore. Uh, the Paige Hernandez, as you know, the host, she also lives in Baltimore, but she's hardly ever there. Uh, and then we have Taswell, who lives in New York City, and so we, we try to bring him down to D.C. The, the entire podcast is a co-production between the WSMT radio network in Chicago and, uh, and then us up in upstate New York. Uh, and then editors, uh, we have an editor and uh, who lives like, in the same in Baltimore as well. The, one of the biggest challenges is trying to get everybody together in the exact same place at the same time to, to, you know, to make an in-studio sound, as you're very well familiar. So it's, that's a massive challenge, but also finding our way into episode one. The number of conversations that we had with each other about what direction do we want this to take. There has to be an opposing voice in the room in order for, for this to sound somewhat authentic. We can't just be a sounding board off of each other. So in the episodes that are upcoming, you know, you hear uh, administrator points of view. You hear other points of view from people, from audience members, uh, you, just about their personal experiences within an art form that's not exclusively theirs. And uh, it, 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 it's become a very fascinating and challenging journey. That's great. Chris, this is Matt. I'm, I'm wondering in terms of the podcast audience itself, who, who is it aimed at? You know, is there, is there a group or, or maybe one individual that you really wish <laughs> would, would listen to it or 
what you what 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 are you going for with that? What we're going we're going for less of the opera aficionado really, and going for some, the people who enjoy a really good story. Uh, and, and a lot of times those are opera people anyway, so to speak, the quote unquote opera people. But uh, really, podcast listeners are are very savvy, and uh, and they're looking for great stories, um, openness, something really interesting. Uh, that you know, that's part of their commute or part of their day. Maybe they're interested in social justice or arts and culture. Um, the you know, we're we're marketing this primarily as uh, social justice and and uh, you know, arts and culture. We also have two uh, really incredible uh, consultants that we're working with on this who have absolutely nothing to do with opera at all because they know the podcast universe and they know what people listen to. Uh, one is Greta Johnson from the Nerdette podcast and uh, also from WBEZ in Chicago. And Amanda McLaughlin, who runs, who uh, has the Spirit podcast, which is fascinating. She's out of New York. And um, we're really following their philosophies of just tell great stories and, uh, and, and just make it, build a conversation with your, uh, with your audience. Chris, before we wrap this up, am I totally insane or is there not some local beer that was brewed in honor of Glimmerglass or Cooperstown? <laughs> Without a doubt, questions. you're asking the right guy. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, there was a, there was a Glimmerglass brew a few years back from the Omegang Brewery. <clears throat> Pardon me, they're a Belgian style uh, brewery. Oh my goodness! If that's you know, if you're going to make a trip to Cooperstown, make sure you're going to Omegang too, because oh boy, you're you're making that's me thirsty, good. buddy. <laughs> You might have to take an OBS road trip. Uh, Christopher Powell is the director of artistic initiatives at the Glimmer Glass Festival in Cooperstown, New York. He's the producer of the new podcast, Breaking Glass. More information is on our website, operaboxscore.com, as well as glimmerglass.com. Chris, thank you so much for hanging out with us this evening here on Opera Box Score. Happy to be here. Have a great night. All right. Ciao. We'll see you. Bye. I am just dying to go to... Cooperstown now. I mean, I've always wanted to go. I think the Baseball Hall of Fame would be pretty boring, personally. <gasps> Are you allowed to say that? Look, did you? Did you? No, you can say it. You can, you can say it. You can say that. Did you watch the All Star Game? The All Star no, Game. There's only no, one did more. Th- okay. watch the All Star <laughs> Game. There's only one thing more boring than the All Star Game, which is the day after the All Star Game. When there's literally no sports anywhere in the U.S. God forbid baseball <laughs> players have a day off, George. <laughs> hey, the first composer ever gets inducted into the OBS Hall of Fame. That's next, only on Opera Box Score and WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendantin Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. Norm Waddell doing the intro there. <laughs> that beautiful, beautiful intro it's like inspires modern, me every it's time. It's a modern-day chariots of fire Toby is what it is. Toby just pees his pants, I think. Every time I piddle. <laughs> <laughs> it's Opera Box Score and WNUR. George Cedarquist here. Seriously, though, every time it starts, George, I just giggle. 
It is the best introduction to any segment we... Well, no, Monday Evening Quarterback. It's true. Okay, sorry. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. 847-866-967. Uh, excuse me, 9687. George Cedarquist with Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams. Boys, okay, so if I told you I'm going to induct a composer into the Hall of Fame this week, but, but obviously you know who it is, but don't mm-hmm. say it. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you had to mm-hmm. guess... Who would you guess? Ooh, that's a good question. Just guess. I, I would have thought seconds. you would have gone Verdi, Mozart. I, I would have thought Sir Mark Campbell. I would have thought composer. composer super so obscure early 20th century German avant-garde someone. You that, know. that sounds a little more like your speed. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I, I forgot <laughs> that I wasn't George for a second. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry about that. No worries. Well, it's I mean, it is 20th century. I am choosing... Benjamin Britt. Hey, it's a, a great choice. You're not going to get a lot of argument. Well, you're you're not. I mean, I think we can all agree, and we don't like to agree on this show. Normally, we're pretty antagonistic. We we kind of hate each other, actually. Yeah. Just, yeah. I, whenever there's a promo running, I'm just literally trying to stab Toby. You know. Right. No, yeah. I'm trying to stab Toby. Oh, that's and then I then I tried to stab Matt because he's trying to get in the way of me stabbing Toby. It's every just, week, it's just a, a every mess. week after the show, I unfriend all of you on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, we all hate Oliver more than we hate each other. He's not even allowed here. <laughs> Benjamin Britten has to be, in my opinion, the most important composer in the English language in the 20th century. I know that's a lot of qualifiers there, but... Yeah, that was... <laughs> that's oddly that's specific, George. <laughs> so it's like every sports statistic ever? Not, not really. I mean, the 20th century is a big... It's a really long century, for a start. Yeah, a whole, hundred whole years, like many centuries. <laughs> okay, a lot happened in those hundred years. In the English language. Here's here's why Britain is so important to me. When I was a boy soprano. Britain the composer or? Or the country. The country, because. Benjamin Britain. Your English they, they did. They did lose the I, world. I saw what you did there. Very nice. When I was a boy soprano, one of the first operas I ever sang in was Albert Herring. And this was at the University of Michigan in the School of Music there. If Actually, have have any of you guys done Albert Herring, or Toby, or No. Uh, North, or Northwestern did it while I was here, but I was not you in weren't it. it. Yeah. No, I was too young. There's to there's three it. children that are in the story, uh, two sopranos and a boy soprano. Usually those sopranos are played by adults, not always. Sometimes they're, they're children. I, I guess the, the boy soprano could also be played by a soprano. It's the role of Harry. Um, but I was so grateful it was to be in this production. It was directed by Ken Kazan, who is now the head of opera at USC. Hmm. Now, George, I have a very important question to ask you right now in Take light of this information. Yes. Uh, would you be willing to give us a little taste of your performance <laughs> from when you were uh, performing the role of Harry in elementary it's school. It's so funny. Unfortunately, my, my voice is barely broken <laughs> <laughs> since then. Not, if I'd asked you this morning, you could have done it. Now, <laughs> now you're just a man soprano. No, dude, my voice is the lowest it is in the morning. Are you kidding me? It gets higher as oh, the day yeah. goes on. Well, okay. Well, I'll, I'll come back to you in two hours, and we'll, we'll see what we can do. Yes. Yeah, he... he uh, Harry has some a couple great moments in the show, and it's it's tricky to sing. I definitely remember not getting any of the music right ever. <laughs> One of the hardest parts to sing is this piece when the three children are playing this game, bouncing a ball, where the beat of the ball on the floor provides part of the beat to the nursery rhyme that they're singing. This is what it sounds like.
Can I just say that me and the other two women who were undergrads, we never ever got it right once. <laughs> You've got to be pretty coordinated to play that role. You have role. to be really coordinated. That yeah. is really hard stuff, man. Yeah. It, I, it probably wasn't even right on the recording. No, probably not. Well, yeah. that was a, that was studio recording. Even even then, sometimes you follow along with the scores, and you're like, "That is not." George, how old were you? When, how old were you when you did that? Oh, man, I was in, I was in like sixth grade, I think. Did you have a fro? Oh, I totally had the fro. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm literally picturing uh, when I was listening to that clip, I was picturing every single part being sung by a very tiny George in just yeah. a massive fro. The little orphan and Andy it chorus really yeah. improved. <laughs> The entire experience for me. That recording was with the English Chamber Orchestra. But that for me, that was the start. I had done one other opera role up to that point. We'll save that for another Hall of Fame. But <laughs> I realized how complex the, this music was, how humorous and how satirical that piece was. My mother, who's English, just thought it was the funniest thing she'd ever seen because it mocked all these people of the generation above her, the whole piece is about how we grow up and how the generation above us needs to be gotten rid of and woken up and get over themselves. And that the whole story, Albert Herring, this man who who comes to life, who becomes a man in the course of this story, she just thought it was... The funniest it's thing. It's too bad I can't think of a single example in modern day <laughs> that, that would fit what Good you thing just history, described. History does not repeat itself. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, Albert Herring from 1947. Britain died in 1976. Billy Budd is, for me, another just seminal work by Benjamin Britton. Th- this is like my dream opera. To direct the scale is so huge, and yet it has this small human drama or dramas. I should say it's a very complex piece in terms of its relationships. These human dramas woven into this epic scale. Plus, I'm just really into everything nautical right now. <laughs> is this your Pirates of the Caribbean? It is. We're on, we're on movie three now, by the way. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. <laughs> but this is a clip of, this is a clip of Billy Bud. But this is going to be a, a clip of Billy <laughs> Bud. Just to clear things yes, up. Yes, yes. This is uh, John Tomlinson singing Claggart's aria from Act One. Uh, Richard Hickox conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. George, what I have to say is that what I love about those two clips already is that you're showing that Britain has one of the widest vocabularies of any composer that I'm familiar with. Like, and those sound nothing alike. Yeah, and where do you hear that? You hear that in the orchestration and in the, the vocal writing? And the way uh, the vocal writing, he's very big on writing the characters differently. Uh, and that comes through, I think, in all of his operas. It's definitely true in, in, in within each character of Billy, but even Billy's music doesn't sound like Claggart's, and Claggart's doesn't sound like Veer's. And even even the choruses. I mean, uh, I love the choruses in Billy Budd, but they're so they're so real, for want of a better word. You know, a, a lot of choruses in operas feel very artificial to me. Um, but outside of a, a few handful of Russian operas, and I think Benjamin Britten. Uh, I, they, they they tend to feel less real and less visceral, but Benjamin Britten really nails them in terms of 
how he writes in terms of how they form the words. And they basically become a character. Yes. That, that, I mean, I've gotten goosebumps listening to the big chorus mob scene from Peter Grimes. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, Peter Grimes. Yeah. The, yes, the writing is just, it sets the text so perfectly when you can like, you can hear all the words. Every selection of every instrument underneath the text makes it more complex. There's tension between the orchestration and between the words. That piece to me, I, I would never be able to sing that, obviously. That's just You know, it's interesting. <laughs> you mentioned the text, and one of my favorite things about Britain um, is the literature that he chose. And the other thing that he did with text is he asked the human voice to use itself differently and lend itself to the sound that would reflect the text. And this is evident you know we talk about peter grimes we talk about i mean obviously billy budden what's going on here turn of the screw um but then you look at some of his non-operatic music and so for me i love britain and george i'm glad that you inducted him but i didn't love britain when i first heard it because i didn't get it i mean i was like what is this it's stark it's cold it's not lyrical you know but then you listen to things like his canticles um, and stuff that he wrote that was topical about the time period that he was living in. You know, t- London bombings in 1942, and that's canticle number three. And and then he didn't like the serenades. Um, yeah. The serenade for tenor and horn is one of my favorite pieces of music of all time. And he asked the voice to do so many different things that will reflect both the mood and the seriousness or lightness of the text. Um, and it's in a unique way that I don't think, you know, some of the Mozart doesn't do that in my ear. Uh, Puccini doesn't really do that. And yes, they ask you to, dis- to there's sweeping emotions that are present in, in the symphonic aspects of those music. But with Britain, he really challenges the voice to be used, not at its full capacity, like at volume wise speaking, but he asks you to really stretch um, to its to, to its maximum extent. And I think that's a beautiful part of what Britain does. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're inducting Benjamin Britain into the OBS Hall of Fame. You're absolutely <laughs> right, Toby. What Britain does for me is that he puts a lot of the work into the orchestra, into those specific choices of instruments, not just to create harmonies or support melodies, but also to tell the story. And I think you really hear that in my last clip that I wanted to pick for the induction tonight, which is from The Turn of the Screw, which he wrote in 1954. It's based on the... Um, Oh, God. Henry James. James. Thank you. I was going to say Herman Melville. <laughs> That's Billy Budd. Yep, exactly. You got it. Yeah. I've done that before on the show. Uh, this piece, okay, first of all, boys, have any of you seen the show? I have. On, only Weston seen video, oh, never yeah. live. Video yeah. for me, too. I saw the, the t- made-for-TV version, um, which is del- a delight. <laughs> this piece is a delight to direct. It, it's tricky because we all have different definitions of of what this piece is. Is this a horror story? Is it just suspenseful? Is it a ghost story? Is it real life? How sexual should it be? And when I got the chance to direct this, it was definitely erotic. I will I would say that. And we went we went to that that place of eroticism between uh the two children. Hmm. And we went to this place of of ghostliness and the production that we that we did took place in a Victorian mansion where the audience moved through the different rooms of the house to watch this this drama unfold. The beginning of Act Two, which is when the two ghosts, uh, Peter Quint and Miss Jessel, meet alone for the first time. I don't think we've seen them, just the two of them together in the opera up to this point, have this... Um, duet or call and response called soliloquy and colloquy this recording uh the Mahler chamber orchestra conducted by daniel harding joan rogers and ian bostridge I beckon, no, not I, 
talk about eroticism that scene between peter quint and miss jessel has got to be one of the most erotic things i've seen on a stage it is so creepy it makes your skin crawl yeah (laughs) and they're talking about children in there also i think i think or maybe not but probably i think all of us in this room were just kind of like staring off into the distance just sort of like (laughs) the libretto is by mafonwi piper when quint sings the words slick as a juggler's mate, like, I just, I get goosebumps. Yeah, you feel dirty. You totally feel, feel dirty. Real dirty. And he wrote it for his life partner. Yeah, Peter good old Pete. <laughs> Peter Pierce, we ha- we're, like, out of time already. Give us a quick little rundown. I, I just of, like, what were you going to say? I always like to think of them, you know, having these conversations, making the plan, where Peter goes, Ben, what, what's for me in this one? In this one, you're going to be a fancy boy who wins a beauty contest. <laughs> in this one, you're going to be a sailor. In this one, you're going to be a ghost who loves little boys. In this one, you're going to be a bellows mender who dresses up as a woman in Shakespeare. <laughs> Just like, what's next? And, and Peter's like, sounds perfect. Sounds great. Let's do it. So let's go. Do I have to sing the correct notes? No, just sing. Just it doesn't it matter. It'll be great. <laughs> Oh my! I, maybe uh, we need to revoke the uh, <laughs> award from Matt Cummings for teasing Benjamin Britton. Get out of the studio. Uh, Benjamin Britton, welcome oh to the OBS Hall of Fame. We're so glad that you're here, along with some illustrious colleagues. You can listen to our past inductees on our past shows. That's on our website, operaboxscore.com. I think the... The circle is complete now, right? Weston, Tobias, Matt. Oh, all of I, you guys I, have all I think done we one, can right? think of a couple more. I don't think we've inducted everyone into the Hall of Fame. No, no, what I mean is like everyone's had a turn. Yeah, oh, yeah. everyone's we made had it a through turn. our yeah. first ring cycle. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. We yes. could do one yes. in the ring cycle. Exactly. I don't know. It would be a lot of arguing about Wagner. That's, a, that's for another day. <laughs> Hey, um, is anyone available to hold Anna Netrebko's hair? That's next on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Keep it locked. WNUR 89.3. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. 
This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Italian mezzo-soprano Cecilia Bartoli, artistic director of the Salzburg Whitson Festival, is bringing Rossini's L'Italiana in Algeri, with herself in the title role, to the Salzburg Festival this month. Moshe Leze and Patrice Collier are the directors working hard to handle this opera in a hashtag MeToo context and in an age of tense East-West affairs. Quote, the last thing I wanted was Western elite people going to the Salzburg Opera and having a lot of fun seeing how, quote, stupid the Arabs are, end quote, Mr. Leze said in an interview. You know, there's always so many issues at the Bayreuth Festival. This season was no different. They began when Alvis Hermanis, who was scheduled to direct the opening day new production of Lohengrin, vacated his job in opposition to Germany's inclusive immigration policy. The replacement is the festival's first American director, Yuval Sharon, also the artistic director of the Industry Opera in L.A. Opera singer Charles Castronovo stepped in to sing across from his wife, Ekaterina Sirina, who starred in Puccini's La Boheme at the Royal Opera House in London. Sirina was playing the lead role of Mimi with Atala Ayan as Rodolfo, her lover. Ayan developed vocal difficulties in Act Two. Castronovo jumped up to sing his part from the wings while Ayan continued acting the part. Exit stage right, a proposal in Congress to cut funding for the National Endowment for the Arts by 15%. The vote in the House of Representatives was 297 to 114, which killed the bill. Acclaimed author, longtime editor for Opera News Magazine and PR manager for Florida Grand Opera, Brian Kello, has died from complications of brain cancer for over 30 years. He served many roles for Opera News, including executive editor and features editor. He's survived by his husband, stage director, acting coach, Scott Barnes. Over to the disabled list, Anna Netrebko and her husband, Yusif Ivazov, have been infected with the norovirus and will be obliged to spend the next few days in quarantine with their family. These artists are now unable to sing in uh, two upcoming performances of Chilea's Adriana Likovre at the Baden-Baden Festival. And on this day... Nothing happened. According to Opera Stats central website, operabase.com, there's never been a major opera premiere on July 23rd. Go figure. That's your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. That is what you're listening to. All right, Opera Box Score in your ear holes. George Cedarquist here on WNUR 89.3 FM. Number in the studio, 847-866-9687. Let us know what's on your opera mind. Tweet us at Opera Box Score. Hanging out tonight with Tobias Wright. Man, I try not to get too political on here, George. Uh, but... He just grabbed the mic. He absolutely did. <laughs> but, but that article about cutting funding for the humanities and the National Endowment of the Arts... It made me so angry when I read the tr- the the quotes from the representative, um, who says that the Trumpsters need to have their day to be heard. Well, they already they they have, and then to read that article was just infuriating. And there was 113 different Republicans. There was one Democrat from Texas uh, who also voted to to cut the funding. But this wasn't to cut the funding. He was saying that he wanted to meet Trump in the middle because Trump wants to defund it completely. But like, regardless, that was an infuriating article and uh, it's more about politics. Who are these people? (laughs) I mean, we talked about this on the show a couple of months ago, but most of the funding for a national endowment by the arts goes to doing educational programs. It's the most (laughs) short-sighted Political, stupid. I can't. I can't fathom it. It bother. It makes me want to punch a puppy. It, 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 it take. It takes. There's. In terms of you want to break down to a pie chart and see what what goes to what. The the amount going to the arts is hilariously but, minuscule but, anyway. But, but that's not dollars. what matters yeah. about this debate. What matters about this debate is that people get the appearance of being tough. They get the appearance of wanting to cut back on pennies of now, our budget. Now. The obviously the, the the motion was overturned. They did keep this particular cut from happening, um, and they were like, "Oh, this is a big step forward." And I was like, "Well, keeping it at the level it is is just unacceptable. How can we get it going in the other direction? We need more of this. I never we don't understand. need just the same." I know. I, know. I never understand, but people act like the arts is not an engine driving the economy. Hospitality and right. arts and entertainment and services is a huge sector of our economy, and it's growing more and more. And 
then why the, can't we invest in that? Yeah. I don't. Ugh. Sorry, it, it's gonna be hard. Lo- to, I got really mad. It's gonna be hard to get artists to disagree about about the facts of <laughs> the facts of this article. But I'm gonna say that the it the debate was not about the money. The debate was not about the arts. The bit the debate was about looking tough and getting headlines and giving Trumpsters their day. Yeah, disgusting. Oh, yeah. Absolutely disgusting. Yuval Sharon, the first American to direct at the Bayreuth Festival. He's a winner of a MacArthur Genius Grant, 39 years old. Here's what's interesting to me about Yuval Sharon is that he has openly, actively promoted this idea that the opera world should follow along with what contemporary theater has done and reconfigure the classics. Sharon's argument is that something like Shakespeare, to reorder Shakespeare, to insert other pieces into Shakespeare, to mess with Shakespeare, nobody would bat an eyelid. Why can we not apply those same principles to opera? And of course, he's absolutely right. We've talked about it on the show before. In Europe, what they do now with opera is they are deconstructing the art form. They've constructed it over the last 400 years. Now they deconstruct it. We're still constructing opera Mm. right now. It would not hurt us to deconstruct opera. His approach to say something like Puccini's La Boheme, this is in the article from the LA Times, is he proposes doing the piece backwards, starting with Act 4, then (laughs) doing Act 3, Act two, act one. Have you guys actually thought through this? So I, I we, we have. We talked about it. I, my main problem is with it is that Puccini makes plans in his music for what order things should come in. Like there's callbacks of music in act three mm-hmm. that, that refer to things that were supposed to have already happened. And when you watch it in the order that it was intended – that it that you know that that's one of the things that tugs at your heartstrings as you hear that motive that you don't even necessarily know that you recognize, but it but it does remind you of something. But Weston and I discuss. I I actually really agree with you, Matt. Weston and I discuss though the excruciating pain of watching Mimi die. Sorry if nobody's seen Bohem, Mimi dies. Spoilers. <laughs> also, if you've never seen Rent, Mimi doesn't die. Oh, double spoilers. Um, but then to end the show with the duet at the end of Act One. I- not horrible. Like theat- I could, theatrically, I think, I think that kind of works actually. And and there there is something to be said for you know doing something new with Bohem, which I I contend is probably the most overplayed piece in the entire repertoire. Um, and doing something new with it is something that I, I would be interested in seeing at least once. We I can don't know update it, it and do it in Rogers Park, Chicago. Yeah, <laughs> we'll put it on right here. You're all cast. You're all in. I'll direct. Uh, I mean, George he, will sing. Here's here. I will definitely not <laughs> sing. Nobody wants to hear that. Here, here's the thing about this idea is is that as an idea, I think we can all agree that it's not terribly original, right? Like they've done this in theater. You look at a play like Betrayal by Harold Pinter, where the entire story is simply told in reverse chronology. Film has done things in reverse chronology. So what's new here? is not the idea. What's new here, and what I think has merit, is its application to an opera. There's something that could be very moving about opening up this story with a young woman dying. We're not really sure why she's dying. We probably don't even care because we don't have any emotional stake in her, right? Like, yes, it's sad someone's dying, but we've spent no time with her, so we don't care that Mm -hmm. she's dying. You then recycle, and you start to see the flashback of this woman's life. It feels like in this concept, Mimi becomes the central character. I think you can argue in other versions that she's not the central character. Mm. In this in this concept, she would be. Even as the title character as yeah. of the Bohemian girl. Yes, yeah. yes, that's that's true. Although you could argue that like they're all they're Bohemian all Bohemian all the title. Yeah, yeah. True. But that you start to see this woman's life slip away in reverse. You start to what you're left with is like all those happy fond memories, which replicates what it can feel like when somebody passes away. Is that when someone passes away is you're not left with their death, which is where act four leaves us. What you're left with is all those memories, the good and bad, that flash before you in an instant. And I think that that's what this approach tries to tries to capture. Hey, um, Anna Trebko and Yusuf <laughs> Evazov... Have the norovirus. They have the norovirus. The norovirus. Oh, no. See, only, only the norovirus, George. Could, could make it sound so dramatic. The norovirus is mean, the stomach. It means the stomach. <laughs> okay. Now, now, what this tells us 
if they both have it, at least they they make out with each other. Oh, that's good. That's they've, good. They've right? at least touched physically yes. one another. Yes. Or they, they've coughed on each or other been near one another. Or they like shared a, a yogurt or something. Yeah. You know I mean? <laughs> More than likely it was that. Does Anu Septo even eat yogurt? I don't know. I haven't. She talked probably to her tweets lately. about it. We should ask her. Yeah, which was exactly. <laughs> Maybe not right now. Uh, it's a little too soon. All of our t- all of our fans should tweet at Anna Trebko. Do she, you eat yogurt? And she, let us know yeah, what she yeah. says. She's she's still probably locked in the bathroom right now. <laughs> oh, I mean, having the. You know, having just, like, minor illnesses, though, can really throw things off when you've got a performance schedule. Oh, absolutely. Look, man, it can throw things off if you got to go to work at, your, at the restaurant. It's true. Nobody yeah. wants, no one wants to be sick. It's a lot easier you know? to fill in for Toby at the restaurant than it is to fill in for Anna Netrebko. No offense, but. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was really low. Is... Do you have a luncheon being thrown I will for not, you as, I will. As I will server? not be here next week. Uh, uh, <laughs> When you get a luncheon thrown for you, then we can talk. Matt, we'll the talk. um the Charles Castronovo story, that, that was your story. So so he was in the audience? Yeah, which the, the article kinda doesn't mention the fact in the headline that he is a re- world renowned operatic tenor who happened to be in the audience. <laughs> just steps just in, some guy <laughs> who steps in and sings hey, the role. This is, this is Charlie Castronovo <laughs> from Downers Grove. I'm just gonna hop on this. Just, I mean, I want to hear. He's it, just Ronaldo. a big Bohem fan, yeah. right? Like he just knew it and stepped up. No, I, I'm gonna do that at every opera I go to. I'm like, I'm ready. I can sing it. I'll sing it from the wings. I don't know it, but yeah. I can sing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I mean, the the good thing was was that the guy who got sick, um, it was in Act Two, and because they were doing it backwards, they only had one more act. <laughs> <laughs> Another good reason for why this should be staged. Those guys in London stole Yuval Sharon's idea. Oh, was me. <laughs> Me killed by the norovirus? <laughs> it's, it's all about the callback. It's, it's yeah, dude. Let's wrap yeah, this okay, show. Right, right. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out how to make fun of poor Anna Nikolko. <laughs> She's gonna be making fun of you next time you get oh, sick, absolutely. George. <laughs> I, you know what? George has the norovirus. <laughs> I, I, I rarely get sick, but man, when you get sick from a child, like. Yeah. It's not. It's not pretty. Tell me about it. It's not pretty. Uh, I, have, I have no children. Good call, bad call. <laughs> the best and the worst sick. from um, opera this week. I I got one. It's it's not. It's kind of opera, kind of concert, kind of musical theater. Do it. But people in the Chicago area, come check out Leonard Bernstein's Mass this mm. Saturday at Ravinia. Uh, the that's the twenty eighth of July. It's at seven thirty. Uh, Bernstein disciple and uh, a mentee Marin Alsop is conducting and uh, with direction by Kevin Newberry we just had our first full room run over the weekend and it's pretty fantastic I'm gonna be there buddy I would not miss that at all Oliver says someone premiere an opera on a future July 23rd so that George can give you an OBS (laughs) PR bump well you can just say uh, on this date in 2018 (laughs) Anna Netrebko had the norovirus today is Anya Harteros' birthday though a star of Yuval of the the Lohengrin that uh, Yuval Sharon wow yeah it really really does all come together tying it it all together Uh, Toby I don't you got anything buddy or you just I'm uh, just uh, living the dream picking my nose Uh, I had to share I had to share a microphone all night with Weston, so I'm. Yeah, I feel very intimate right now. Yeah, this is this is really good. We're really close right now. We've come together as people. He's physically. See, see next week it's going to be a one man show. You guys are going to have norovirus because <laughs> 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 I'm in Studio One. I'm going to be just fine. <laughs> uh, the uh, the boys at um, I think they're all boys at Opera Wire. I could be wrong. There might be some girls there too. Probably uh, some women. They have a they have a, a quiz on their website right now. It's uh, linked to our website too, operaboxcore.com. It's a opera history quiz. I got a big three out of ten. Just for the record, George, I took that quiz too, and I got a nine out of yeah, ten. Yeah, suck okay. it, dude. We don't, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. Um, take the quiz. Let us know what you get. You can tweet us at opera box score hey that's it for this week's edition of america's talk radio show about opera the general manager at wnur is nick anderson our announcer is norm waddell visit norm on the web at voxershorts.com v-o-x-e-r-s-h-o-r-t-s.com our theme song is vodka inferno written and performed by the diablo swing orchestra on Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share, comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. You can leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. 
The creative consultant for Upper Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera while sitting in the bleachers and watching your favorite baseball team play. Go Cubbies. We're back on Monday, July 30, 9 p.m. Central. More interviews, opera news, hot takes. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment.